Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Link Podcast, the industry's link to learn, innovate, news, and knowledge in global supply chain intelligence, hosted by food logistics and supply and demand chain executive. We cover everything from transportation and warehousing trends and new technology to food safety and sustainability impacting today's supply chains. I'm Brielle Jekyll, Associate Editor of Food Logistics and SDCE, and we are finishing up this month's theme of spirits and alcohol distribution with Bobby Berg, uh, who is the SVP of Operations and the Chief Supply Chain Officer at Southern Glazers. We discuss uh, some things that COVID has changed for the alcohol distribution industry and how extra regulations for this sector add to the complexity of the job. So let's link into that conversation now. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. I'm here with Bobby Berg, who is the SVP of Operations and uh, Chief Supply Chain Officer at Southern Glazers. Hi, Bobby. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, and thanks for asking us to be a part today. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear uh, what you have to say about alcohol distribution, um, especially in this crazy time we're going through right now. It has been a whirlwind for 10 months now. I'm going. Right. So I guess the first thing I want to ask you is, can you give me a little description about what Southern Glazer's role in the logistic process of alcohol distribution is? Sure. So um, Southern Glazer uh, represents uh, suppliers and manufacturers um, in selling and distributing their brands in the United States and Canada. And uh, our part on the logistics side is that uh, we kind of do two pieces. We, we have the sourcing piece on the front end where we move the product from its source point, And we do that from over 50 countries and around 100 or so uh, shipping points around the world, uh, as well as domestic. And we bring those products into the United States, into our facilities, uh, which we have 49 of them. Uh, around the country in 40, 44 states. So the first part is we source the product, uh, we bring it in, we make it available for sale, we bring it into our warehouses either through ocean or rail or truck, sometimes by air. And that's kind of the inbound part of the logistics piece. Um, relatively complicated, we're, um, we're the 53rd largest um, importer into the United States, larger than companies like uh, Volkswagen and others. Uh, so we do bring a lot of product into the country. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's a fairly dynamic uh, supply chain global on the inbound side. On the outbound side, uh, we service around 260 to 280,000 customers a week. And um, our logistics on the outbound side is uh, we, we take orders through a very uh, varied uh, platform, either electronically, technically, a salesman going into the account digitally. And we uh, pick and, and pack those orders and then we put them uh, on a private fleet and, and deliver them uh, multiple times uh, during the week. So our logistics are two ends, the, the bringing in the product from the field and from around the world, and then the uh, distribution to um, the final retail account, whether it be on-premise, off-premise, hotels, restaurants, grocery stores, those types of things. 
So I originally wanted to ask you about state-to-state -state regulations and how you handle that, but since you're such a global organization, how, how do you handle that country-to-country -country and state-to-state? -state? Well, there, there's a lot of um, um, federal and state regulations as it relates to uh, packaging of the product, label approvals so that they can be sold within, within the state. Um, we generally partner uh, with customs brokers uh, who help us manage these products through uh, the supply chain to ultimately our destination. Uh, but the vast majority of the approval process um, for products being sold in the U.S. is done by the owner of the product. So uh, Pernod Ricard, which, which owns Absolute, is responsible for making sure that Absolute is uh, registered in each one of the markets in each one of the states so that they could, uh, so they could be sold. So a lot of that um, front-end part of having products available in the U.S. and available for sale to consumers uh, is done from the brand owners. Okay. So in terms of transportation from state to state, it's um, not as daunting of a task. No, and, and in fact, one of the few things that, that people don't know about our industry is that it's actually against the law to move products from one state to another. Oh. So it's, uh, it's um, so in our business, um, where we operate in a market, we actually have to have a facility in that marketplace. You cannot cross state lines. So unlike other CPG companies, non-alcoholic and uh, non-tobacco related, um, we cannot cross uh, state lines. So uh, what gets brought into Florida must be sold uh, by Florida. And, and the same is true for all the rest of uh, the state. So it's called a primary source law. It means that the product has to be billed to the primary location for where it's going to be sold, and that is at the state level. Wow, I did, I didn't I never knew that. That's so um, that makes it. Does that make it more complicated or less complicated? Much more complicated. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, because you know if 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 you're a craft or um, Cisco Foods or something like that and. You know, you're able to do regional distribution, you know, you could put a spot in a, in a geographically regional best place and then move it out from there and cover multiple markets and multiple states. There's a lot of efficiencies in that. Um, so it, it's a little bit more complex um, when you're having to, to forecast and, and hold inventory, you know, for just one market, you, you don't have as much opportunity for balancing inventory from one warehouse to the other, unless it's within the same state. So it does present, a, you know, quite some challenges that might not be found in other CPG type operations. So I know, obviously, COVID has really impacted demand and consumer facing trends. Um, but has it changed? I know, you know, you just told me about the, you know, you have to keep it in the same state, but has um, COVID changed any regulations when it comes to transporting and distributing alcohol? No, I don't, I, I don't think it's changed any regulations. All of the um, state and federal regulations related to DOT or any OSHA or any of those other things that were governed by EPA and those types of things have not been um, lax during the COVID period. So um, there hasn't really been any major uh, regulatory changes um, 
for us. I mean, most of our changes on the logistics sides have been market driven supply and demand for rail space and, um, you know, over the road trucking uh, space and that type of thing, but not so much in the regulation area. Okay. It's because consumer facing even regulations have changed. I know in my state, I'm in New Jersey and where I live, uh, I'm on the shore. We can't have open carry out containers. So you can't get like, like cocktails or drinks to go. Um, I know in other states you can, but since COVID happened and everything was takeout, they, they changed that. Um, so I didn't know. So now you're allowed to take cocktails to go in like a temp, um, tamper proof container. And so, yeah, so I, you know, I, I do think there, there has definitely been some changes in the retail regulations. So as an example, a restaurant uh, that did a to-go business uh, was not allowed to do spirits and wine as part of the to-go menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as uh, the lockdowns um, created some issues for our, on, for our retail uh, restaurants, bars, and so on, um, they did loosen some of those regulations to allow restaurants and bars, you know, to include wine and, and spirits in their food orders, uh, which wasn't done uh, before. Those types of regulations are all state, as you brought up, or state generated. So um, Florida allowed that uh, to happen to help restaurants offset a lot of the losses they've had by having to close indoor dining when they did that back in June. Uh, it's since opened up, but there are a lot of other markers, markets that have, are still restricted. And so there have been some changes on the, on the retail side to consumers. So we are a middle tier business. So uh, by law, um, we're in what's called a three tier system. Uh, there's the manufacturer who owns the brand. There's the middle tier, which is the wholesaler who distributes the product, which is us. And then there's the retailer for where a consumer can buy the product. So there's three distinct tiers in the alcohol beverage business. And we play in that middle, middle ground of between the owner of the brand and the, the local bar who sells the product. Right. So uh, there has been change on the on the retail side but not so much on the wholesale side do you think um i know we're talking in terms of regulation but in terms of the way not just regulations but also like just how you operate and how um alcohol is distributed do you think that covid will leave a lasting impression on that i think i think covid will will uh, accelerate some of the Um, changes that have been happening in the marketplace for some time where there's uh, more delivery to home and and um, more of an experience of of being able to order online in a digital uh, platform and getting it uh, to your house uh, versus having to go to your local you know I guess grocery store where you might uh, buy products Um, because it does seem that there's going to be a continuation of the kind of staying a little bit closer to home part. Um, Some of the other loosening of the regulations um, may not be retracted. Uh, They were old kind of uh, um, rules that have been put back years ago. It really didn't serve a lot of purpose. Um, It was all meant to um, to, to protect youngsters and people from drinking underage and those types of things. And, and I think they've found that, that they could probably loosen some of these regulations and create more opportunity for both the consumer and the retail establishment. But 
Um, I think it's also a little too early to tell. You know, it, it depends on how much longer this goes. Um, there's there's roughly about 45% of our on-premise customer base that is still closed. I mean, not open at all. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and, and so there's been a dramatic effect um, on uh, restaurants and bars in particular and the hospitality industry in general um, that have really been affected by this, the closures and the, you know, no inside dinings. And, you know, when you look at the state like New Jersey and New York, they've had some fairly um, uh, aggressive uh, protocols when it comes to opening of restaurants and, and that type of thing. So, um, we're not sure really in the long term how many of those will reopen again. And uh, even with all the federal government support, I mean, some of them may never reopen. So I do think there are going to be uh, some changes in the marketplace, but it's probably 12 months too early to, to see what that's going to look like. Mm-hmm. So for my last question, I know we've been talking a lot about regulations and logistics and things like that, but I wanted to kind of switch gears and talk about um, your company as a whole. So next month, we're going to start our theme um, on diversity. So February will be our diversity and inclusion uh, and equality month. And Southern Glazer has, has a strong social responsibility uh, initiative uh, strategy in place. So when dealing with so many partners, how are you able to make sure that you're aligning uh, with those with companies that have that are sure to have the same values as you? You know, our company has, is a family-owned uh, organization, and I think, you know, and I'm on my 29th year here, so I've been pretty um, involved in, in their growth and, and, and how the company has changed over the years. Um, we, we are uh, very, very uh, attuned to uh, social responsibility in a lot of areas, even though we don't manufacture anything. Um, most of everything that we do operationally is done with a sustainable approach, whether it be, you know, uses of water or uses of electricity or uh, hard and soft scapes uh, for our facilities around the uh, country. Um, we've been very much um, uh, pushing and, and, and being attentive to our diversity uh, candidates. Just in my department alone, I have, you know, three vice presidents that report to me and, and Two of them are gender diverse. Um, we, we, and you can see on our social platforms and, and there are others in our company who could give you a much, much more deeper detail on this than I can. But um, even before some of the upheaval and, and stuff that's happened in 2020, um, the company has been really driving a very diverse organization. And mainly our, our partners on the supplier side are very, very large global companies like Diageo and uh, Suntory Beam and Pernod Ricard and Moet Hennessy. Um, very, very strong also in the diversity, inclusion, and sustainability areas. And uh, they want to be proud of their wholesaler in the U.S. And, and we obviously want them, you know, as, as a um, customer. So we work very closely with them and, and share programs together and put programs together for, for our organization here that mirrors some of the things that, uh, they're, uh, uh, that are important to them. And it, we've got an entire department within our um, HR and people department that, that really focuses on these things. So as a company, I think we're in the forefront. We're certainly in the forefront in our own industry, um, but I would mm-hmm. challenge 
um, anyone to say that we're not at the forefront really across most large consumer packaged good companies um, of our size and of our employee base. So uh, very proud of what we've done and we've made a lot of progress and it's a continued uh, uh, project for us to continue to, to be better at what we do and to be uh, good citizens for both our community and our customers and our consumers. Yeah, I, I was I was diving into some of that yesterday, and it really blew me away. I mean, it's it's very inspiring the work that you do, and I'm very excited to hear that you work with Moet Hennessy because I I know that they're big on inclusion and equality. Um, I actually even went to um, they they had a special International Women's Day wine pairing um, in New York. Um, that was back when I worked in in luxury. Um, and that was so another inspiring moment. Um, so it's great to see all these companies working together to, you know, really push for things like this. Yeah, it's, it's been, um, a great, a great kind of evolution, uh, for our, our company. And, you know, we participate in a lot of things like you just mentioned there's a, or a event in California called Women of the Vine, where, which we helped begin, uh, start and, and, and are partners with over the last years, uh, where up and coming stars in our, in our industry all get together for a week and, and really discuss the industry and, and professional and personal development. And um, it, it's been great to be a part of it. That's great. Well, that's all the questions I have for today. Okay. Well, thank I you so it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode and to our guests for coming on the show. Tune in every Tuesday for our episodes of Link by Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive. And next week, we're going to shift gears uh, away from our uh, alcohol-themed month and into our Diversity, Inclusion, and Equality Month. So don't forget to hit subscribe on the Spotify, Apple, and Google, Google Playlist apps so you never miss an episode.